I, Edward J. Leonsky, after being made aware of my rights, without fear of punishment or hope of reward, do hereby freely and voluntarily make the following statement. On Monday night, 18th of May, 1942, I was drinking beer in the Parkville Hotel. When the pub closed, I went to the home of a friend. With him, I lay on the bed for about 30 minutes. Then I got up and went out. On the corner, I met a girl. It was a small girl. She was carrying an umbrella. It was raining, and I asked her to let me walk along with her. She said, All right. Welcome to Dead and Buried Podcast, a series which delves deep into the underground history of Melbourne. I'm Lee Hooper. And I'm Carly Godden. It's our very last episode for this series. Yeah, it's been quite a ride, huh? Yeah, I know, it's hard to believe. So, for our very last one, we're venturing into a darker period in Melbourne's history, quite literally. For much of World War II, the city was cast in semi-darkness, known as the Brownouts. And in popular imagination, the Brownout period in Melbourne is seen as having provided the perfect environment for lurid behaviour and criminal activities. While this idea emerged partially from overblown public perceptions about just how wild things were, it's also based on events that were very real and took place very close to home. So let's introduce our guest producer for this special episode, Anna Snookstra. Hi, how are you going? Yeah, great. It's great to be here. Wonderful to have you with us. So you're a novelist, screenwriter and crime author. That's right. Uh, How did you and Carly come to be talking about the story? Well, I was actually interested in writing this story as a novel to begin with, and I knew that Carly worked in the archives. I didn't know her super well then, but she was kind of my inside source. So I met up with her at the archives and we started looking through the file and looking at the murder photos and all the confessions, and it was quite a bonding experience because they were quite horrific. Yeah, they were they're pretty intense. How did you first hear about it yourself? Yeah, well, I actually was talking to a friend of my mum so she my mum works at uh, seniors victoria actually and i had no idea about this story at all and he just started just kind of going on a bit of a rant about it and just sat down for an hour and and told me and kept saying oh you're probably not interested in this and i was like no keep going this is fascinating so after that i was quite obsessed with it and i knew i wanted to write about it but i was trying to think the right way to do it and so i started a master's just researching the story and what happened and ended up abandoning that about halfway through. But I definitely have a good knowledge of it now and a good understanding about how the story unfolded. And so you're going to be writing a novel about this story, right? That's the plan. I wonder how it ends, eh? (laughs) (laughs) Guess we'll find out. We'll find out. So it's set uh, in uh, Camp Pell. Now, where exactly was Camp Pell? So Camp Pell uh, was actually in Royal Park. So I studied at Melbourne University and uh, Royal Park's right across the road. It's sort of halfway between Melbourne Uni and the zoo. 
And so it's things like that that I found really fascinating about this story, all the little details, like the soldiers that were stationed at Camp Pell could hear the zoo animals at night, and they just thought that Melbourne was this exotic, far-off place. They came from America, sometimes from, like, small country towns to Australia and were sleeping and listening to these lions and elephants at night. And for me, that just sounded just so amazing and a story that I had never heard before, so I was really interested. So that's the waves of US soldiers that entered Melbourne during this period of World War II, which we'll talk a little bit more about later. I had no idea that Royal Park was a camp for American soldiers. No, neither did I. I mean, I would you know, jog around it, walk dogs around it. I was living nearby and would walk through it to get to school every day and I just had no idea. And there's even stories that there's secret tunnels that people don't know the, the uh, entrances to where there's still some uh, war memorabilia from the 40s and, and weapons that are down there and no one knows how to access them. And Yeah, I've heard about that and there have been, like, you know, a lot of people who have tried to find it. I think there's, like, a, a website where people talk about it a lot there expedition to try and find <laughs> underground bunkers. Yeah, that's my website, actually. Oh, is it? <laughs> well, <laughs> the more you know. <laughs> so to investigate this story more fully, Dead and Buried handed over the reins to Anna, with Carly helping out on the ground. And just a bit of warning, this episode contains some disturbing content, so it isn't really suitable for children. We began this inquiry by tracking down and pouring through all the sources we could lay our hands on. We pulled the original criminal case file from the State Archives, part of which you heard narrated just before in the introduction to this episode, and we also pulled through newspapers and academic articles. But there was a lot about the Singing Strangler story that we still didn't know, and in particular, what was happening in Melbourne during the brownout period. So we spoke to an expert in World War II history on the Melbourne home front. We met in her fourth floor office at Melbourne University, right across the road from Royal Park. My name's Kate Gerian Smith. I'm Professor of History and Cultural Heritage at the University of Melbourne. And I've worked as a social and cultural historian for several decades. My interest in the Second World War really started in the 1980s when I was interested in finding out about what really happened in Australia on the home front. So Kate told us that 1942 is often referred to as Australia's year of panic. Darwin had just been bombed, as had Broome. There were even stories floating around that Australia had actually already been invaded by the Japanese. But I really wanted to know how seriously Australians were actually taking these rumours at the time. Did they think they'd be invaded? Well, certainly there are some moves to introduce the um, uh, Brisbane line uh, at the government level, although that's not conveyed to the public. That is that if um, Australia is invaded, um, really the government will abandon northern Australia, so you can see why they don't they don't let the public know that. It's sort of a line across from Brisbane and just look after um, uh, Australia in the south. Um, but there is, there is a belief that there might be invasion. It's a pretty ambitious plan and you have to go a long way to get south and sort of for what. But, um, you know, round, round Melbourne and, and at lots of railway stations, they actually removed um, 
the signage on on stations and so that if if the Japanese came, they wouldn't know where they were and that kind of caused a bit of confusion. It sounds like people believed invasion was a serious possibility. Yeah, it's hard to imagine what the headspace would have been like at the time. Luckily, we don't have to leave the experience of wartime Melbourne entirely to our imaginations or our textbooks. Through Anna's connections, we tracked down an 89-year-old woman who had an incredible memory of the period. We drove for almost two hours out to her retirement village to talk to her over a cup of tea and biscuits. I'm Verna Dance, and at the beginning of World War II, I was 12 and a half years old. I remember the occasion vividly because my mother and my grandmother were sitting by the radio listening to the uh, Lux play of the air, which was broadcast every Sunday night at 8 o'clock. And it was interrupted by Mr Menzies, who was our Prime Minister, and he announced that Britain had declared war on Germany and Australia was now at war. I asked Werner if she could remember how much civilians actually knew about the threat at the time. We knew very little of what was going on. It had been sheer panic had we known that were 80 people killed in Broome and so many in Darwin and places like that. We knew Darwin was bombed and the post office was knocked out, but we had no idea that Japanese were in Sydney Harbour, anywhere like that, which they were. In 1942, 4,550 servicemen arrived in Port Melbourne from San Francisco. Berna told us about how her and her friends reacted to these men, and it's important to keep in mind that these girls were very naive about American culture. The only Americans they'd seen were from movies. Their farm was the dump for the petrol. And she said the first American she saw, she almost fainted. He was so big and black and... <laughs> She'd never seen anything like it. Part of my extra service was working in the dugout, which you've heard of that in Swanson Street. Maybe just explain a little bit. Yeah, can you tell us a bit? Well, the dugout was a nightclub type of place for the Americans. So, Lee, can you guess where the dugout is? No, I've got no idea. Well, you've probably been there quite a few times. It's Max Watts, also formerly known as the Hi-Fi Bar. Oh, yeah, I've been there heaps. It's right in the middle of the city. It's a music venue. Yeah, there's definitely still a lot of drinking going down there. That's for sure. Living in such a connected society today, it's hard to imagine that Australians knew so little about American ways of living. But this situation extended both ways across the Pacific. Here's Kate again. They're given a book um, that explains the differences between Americans and Australians. Um, A lot of those comparisons are really quite fascinating. They're often around diet. Um, For instance, the Americans drink more coffee, Australians drink tea. The Americans certainly introduced hamburgers and hot dogs, brought in Coke in big numbers, um, and had various other kinds of food preferences. For instance, things like um, ice cream with hot apple pie, which for Australians was actually quite exotic, that you would have a hot dessert with something cold like that. 
But aside from this fascination with the cultural differences, I wanted to know directly from Verna how people in Melbourne really felt about this influx of young American men. No, they were very welcome and it was an enthusiastic welcome to them. But that was encouraged by the government of the time and the military forces and so on because we desperately needed the support. We didn't realise at our age how desperate things could have been. I remember my mother telling me that one stage she was terrified when some of the local hierarchy in the army had come to the door to tell her what to do with us three daughters if the Japanese arrived, not to let us live to be taken away by the Japanese. And they were given tablets, I believe, to give us. And I can imagine why, but she didn't tell us that till we were... It's about the time I was getting married, I think. <laughs> she was quite upset telling us. She was glad that she still had us to tell. <laughs> so can you tell us a bit more about what Melbourne looked like during the brown hour? Just as you said, brown. <laughs> dull, dull. Mm. Was it scary at night, it being so dark? I can't say I was ever scared. We had a, a torch which we had to use and make sure when you were crossing the road that you know, it was safe to do so because of a lot of... We didn't have the number of cleaning people around you have now. Lots of rubbish was dropped because there weren't the people to clear it up only a couple of times a week. So be careful with how you walked and getting to the trains and getting on and off. You certainly needed a torch good quality one if you could find one. Neon signs went to sleep and the train headlamps were partially covered and the street lamps were dimmed. I started work in the city when I was 15, just before I was 15. Precautions weren't just taken in the centre of the city. All civilians had the responsibility of dimming lights from their windows and cars. Can you tell us a bit more about the curtains that your mum made? Well, they're from, she dyed hessian, dark brown, and they had to be doubled, mm. like double thickness to keep the light out. Pull them across at night, I forget what time, I suppose as soon as it got dark. Yeah. And we had um, kerosene lamps. I'd, we didn't have electricity in the home we were living in, and so they weren't too bright anyway. <laughs> Did your father, was he the one that um, painted the, the car windows? No, we did. My sisters, myself, a bit of fun doing that. <laughs> well, we measured them up carefully. I think it had to be, well, it did have to be about three quarters of the space from the bottom. To be careful not to get it on your fingers because getting it off was a problem. <laughs> At first, Australians felt nothing but gratitude to the Americans for their support and for their men. But as time went on, this changed. As time goes on, there starts to be more strain on facilities. You know, there's a lot of overcrowding. There's really not much to do in Melbourne. It's seen as quite a dull town. And, um, you know, one of the things... Uh, that is said about it by some Americans is that it's half as big as New York Cemetery, but twice as dead. 
So there's those kinds of comments. But, you know, there's not that much to do. And it's a town, too, where uh, cinemas are shut on Sunday. There's still restricted hotel um, hours. And so, you know, there is a... a, Things start to build up in terms of... um, those tensions about space and about what to do. And in, in, in the evening, there's just hundreds of people just walking up and down Flinders Street or down at St Kilda, most of them servicemen, just sort of wandering aim, aimlessly because there isn't much to do. And for many young women, certainly those that I've interviewed, it was really exciting to see Americans. Um, they have very smart dress uniforms. They look great. They speak in a way... Uh, with their accents that seems exotic and out of a movie and pretty quickly um, Australian women and Australian families are finding that various customs are a little bit different. For instance, uh, Americans, uh, American men would bring bunches of flowers. Um, They also had access to luxury goods like chocolates and silk stockings through their military canteens that brought in huge amounts of... Um, material and, and objects and things, cigarettes, alcohol and so on. So they could, they had access, they could bring those when they visited families. So I think young women, on the one hand, they're, they're encouraged to be sociable and on the other hand, I think there's this idea that they shouldn't be too friendly and that they should remain um, loyal, if you like, to um, their... Uh, Australian boyfriends and so on. But according to Verna, that pressure to stay loyal to their Australian sweethearts didn't always win out. Why do you think your friends preferred them to the their um, Australian fiancés? Nylon stockings and money. <laughs> We'd never seen nylon stockings. <laughs> money and a good time and something different. The American uniforms were very smooth material and very smart. The the Australian uniforms were pretty rough khaki and baggy. They just didn't fit nicely. The Americans, because of the uniform they wore too, they were much, appeared to be much more upstanding and smart. And their caps were so different. So you can really see this period captured in the work of Albert Tucker, who's a well-known Australian artist. Yeah, he was really influenced by uh, what was happening at the time and his paintings really changed the course of Australian art. So it's really fascinating to know how it inspired him. Exactly. So we went to the Heidi Museum of Modern Art, which actually was Albert Tucker's home for a period of time. My name is Kendra Morgan. I'm one of the curators here at Heidi Museum of Modern Art and I've worked here at Heidi since 2003. We sat down with Kendra in the library of what was the original home of the founders of the Heidi Museum. Here we talked about Albert Tucker's work and in particular his iconic series, Images of Modern Evil. The the Images of Modern Evil um, do... Many people do think they express Tucker's outrage at this kind of moral decline that occurred once the American GIs arrived um, after the bombing of Pearl Harbour. And that was the period when Melbourne was experiencing the brownout, which wasn't as extreme as the blackout, you know, in London, for example, but all the lighting was reduced during the streets and um, 
the, there were very airy effects, as you can imagine, lighting effects, which Tucker was very interested in. But because of the dim street lighting, there are a lot of newspaper accounts that indicate there was a lot of lascivious behaviour going on. You know, there was a, a really real concern that there was um, an increase in prostitution, an increase in kind of assignations on the streets. And also, you know, Melbourne developed this kind of dark underbelly because the American soldiers were cashed up. They had, uh, were able to go to entertainment venues. Um, there was a bit of brawling on the streets because there were tensions between the Americans and the Australians. There was more crime, there was a black market, the Americans could buy alcohol and so forth. And Tucker later said that he was quite outraged at what was going on. So when he began to paint the images of modern evil, um, in fact, the, the very first painting is called Spring in Fitzroy and it, it's, a, it's a kind of a deconstructed mood and, and quite horrific. Um, but it, 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 it's really... The precursor to that image is the memory of Leonsky. But we haven't really properly talked about Leonsky yet, have we? No, not really. Yeah, and he's the key player in all of this. So among the thousands of American servicemen that were wooing women and complaining about Melbourne nightlife was a 24-year-old man from New Jersey named Edward Joseph Leonsky. Yeah, and in many ways he was a lot like his fellow servicemen, right? So he liked hard drinking... He's very strong. There's a lot made out about how strong he is. Yeah, exactly. You hear all these stories about him getting up on the bar and walking on his hands and, and waking up other soldiers in the middle of the night to try and fight them. And he talked in this fine voice when drunk. That was the other thing that I really remembered from, from our research. Exactly, yeah. It was, it was very strange. He would talk like a woman when he was drunk and then the next day he wouldn't be able to remember anything that he'd done. He started drinking a lot and it really got out of control. Still, this was nothing so unusual, but in the early hours of May 3rd, 1942, everything changed. In the criminal case file, we found Leonsky's police statement of what happened that night. And again, a warning, these statements are disturbing. On Saturday, May the 2nd, I was drinking in the Bleak House with a number of soldiers. One of these soldiers was Mac Phillips from my outfit. I borrowed 24 shillings from him. We drank for quite a while. I don't remember how many drinks we had. We were drinking beer and scotch. We left. I don't remember what time we left. I had been drinking all day. I know I was high when I went into the hotel. We walked across the street to the beach where we sat against a wall on the beachfront. We drank a bottle of beer. The other soldier got up and left. I don't know why he left. I was alone with the girl. We necked a little bit. I did not have intercourse with that girl. I think her name was Pat. We got up and walked back to the corner across the street. The other soldier was waiting there for us. The three of us stood around waiting for the tram. When the tram came, the soldier and the girl got on it and left. I saw a girl standing by a doorway. She smiled. I made some comment about her bag. I took it in my hand and then gave it back to her. The girl moved back into the recess and I must have followed. I had my arms around her neck. I grabbed her by the neck on the left side. I changed the position of my hands and grabbed the front of her throat. I squeezed and she fell rapidly. Her head hit the ground while I still had my hands on her throat. I started to rip and tear her clothes until I came to her belt. Just could not rip that belt. I ripped her clothes below the belt and came back to it. The belt made me mad. While I was trying to rip her belt, I heard footsteps. I picked up my hat, which had fallen off, and put it on. I turned to my right and walked up Victoria Street. 
The woman was 40-year-old Mrs Ivy Violet McLeod. In the early hours of the following morning, a witness had seen a man in an American uniform kneeling over a lifeless female form. The sighting kicked off the rumour, which circulated throughout Melbourne, that it was an American who was responsible for the murder. However, Australians still felt indebted to the Americans for their help, so the detectives on the case had to tread very carefully. With each passing night, crime was increasing on the darkened streets of Melbourne, and there was talk of a midnight curfew for women. On May the 8th, Prime Minister John Curtin announced to Parliament that the need for the brownout would be reassessed because of this rising crime rate. That very same night, 31-year-old Pauline Thompson was stood up for a dance. While waiting for her date to arrive, she met Leonsky and they drank together. He offered to walk her home and she accepted, since the heavy rain was making the streets even darker than usual. Pauline had a beautiful voice and as they walked together, she sang to him. She sang as we walked along. We turned a corner and there was nobody around. I didn't see anybody. I just heard her voice. Then we came to the stone steps. There were long steps. I grabbed her. I don't know why. I grabbed her around the neck. She stopped singing. I said, keep singing, keep singing. She fell down. I got mad then and tore at her. I tore her apart. There was somebody coming across the street. I hid behind a stone wall. I was terrified. My heart was pounding a mile a minute. I couldn't bear to look at her. I knew I had to get back and I didn't have any money. I picked up her purse and I put it under my coat. I could not go far with such a big purse. I turned left and ran into an alley. I went to bed, but I did not sleep much. I woke up the next morning with a terrible headache. I looked for a drink straight away. I don't know where I found it. Probably one of the boys had a bottle. They usually do. She would not sing. How could she sing? Me choking her when I wanted her to sing. Pauline's body was found on Spring Street, right near the Treasury Building. This is right in the heart of Melbourne City, so it's not surprising that many people had seen Pauline and an American man, which we now know was Leonsky, drinking that night. The detectives and the public were now certain that the murderer was an American soldier. Because these happened in a fairly quick period of time, they're directed at women, they seem to be sexually motivated... You know, this is a really big story and it's a story that gains a a sort of momentum of its own and creates huge panic in a city that's overrun with strangers, both American and Australian actually, young men stationed here, um, where the lights are turned off at night, uh, where people are generally fairly jittery about the war. Um, and where they're starting to be concerned about issues such as the morality of of young women. So I think, you know, to say they are sensational and they have a great impact almost underestimates it. But also there's that kind of rumour mill too that's happening at the same time. And even before anyone is charged with the crimes, there's this general assumption among the Australian population that it must be an American. I think a number of people from the period remember um, that they would 
be advised if they were young women not to go out alone at night, to go with friends, to come home. Um, I certainly interviewed women who could remember that their mothers and fathers would barricade the front door at night when they came home and kind of, you know, say, look, don't go out with an American, come back and be safe. So I think it did create some sense that Americans um, were responsible. I can't remember any who were game to walk alone, not even with the Australian soldiers around. Some would get into a situation where perhaps they had to, and those are the ones who were in trouble, very likely. If you had to walk, you know, to get the train or something like that, and no one else was going your way. After the murder, Australian women who ended shifts after dark were instructed to walk in groups of six or more and female university students were strongly advised to stay away from evening lectures. But, as Verna says, some women didn't have a choice but to walk alone. I found this great quote from an 18-year-old Air Force stenographer, which I'll read to you now, and it really shows how much the relationship between Americans and Australians in Melbourne had changed directly as a result of the murders. After the second strangling, we were all petrified. The atmosphere was really terrible. It seemed to be so dark and raining most of the time. One night I had to stay back very late, typing the names of men believed missing in Singapore. Our CEO was an old diehard. He refused to drive me back to my billets, told me to catch a tram. By this time, we despised Australian girls who threw themselves at the Americans, for whom we now had a quiet hatred. I got off the tram, but an American suddenly blocked my way. Before he could speak, I screamed and ran but it turned out that he was on a patrol assigned to offer lone Australian servicewomen a lift back to their barracks or billets. He was of my age and almost as jittery as I was. Perhaps you could see the nervousness in his face and that would provide some kind of reassurance. I don't know. Yeah, I reckon there's probably a lot of serial killers with nervous faces though. <laughs> No way, I'm running home. I'm going to take my bicycle. It's interesting as well that he was afraid yeah. yeah. as well. It wasn't just the women, the men, the American men walking around felt, felt afraid as well. For them as well, coming to a foreign country and they must be feeling like they're under scrutiny. Ooh. But at the same time, I think with this, this time, you've got to understand that she probably had a lot of freedoms leading up to this time. She had a job. I mean, freedoms for women in the 40s changed huge amount and then suddenly because of these murders suddenly there's these ideas of curfews she's not allowed to walk around by herself suddenly everything's shifting and she's been told that she might be murdered I mean I would be pissed off and afraid yeah well I guess it was a pretty scary time and there's no way in hell I would have been getting in a car with anyone yeah well that's the thing she didn't have much of a choice did she she was kind of picking between walking home alone in the dark knowing there was a murderer on the loose or getting in the car with someone who potentially could have been a murderer. So isn't it funny, though, that they've got an American to drive these women home as some kind of goodwill gesture, perhaps? It seems a strange choice to me, to be mm. honest, because at that time the Americans themselves still didn't know who it was. Yeah, it's strange. And, in fact, there were also two near misses with Leonsky that happened over the next week. So in Parkville, which as people might remember, was not very far from Camp Hell, Leonsky followed a woman home from the tram stop and attempted to strangle her in the doorway to her house. While running away, he stopped a policeman and asked for a cigarette, so obviously wasn't too worried. 
And then the second time, he attempted to strangle a woman as she opened her front door. However, neither woman reported the incidents, although I wonder if it would have made any difference if, if they had. Well, the police at the time didn't exactly have the best track record when it came to investigating sexual assault claims, right? Yeah, I guess at the end of the day, we just don't know. But what we do know is that it wasn't long until Leonski did kill again. The victim this time was Gladys Hosking, a librarian at the chemistry school at Melbourne University. On Monday night, 18th of May, 1942, I was drinking beer in the Parkville Hotel. When the pub closed, I went to the home of a friend. With him, I lay on the bed for about 30 minutes. Then I got up and went out. On the corner, I met a girl. It was a small girl. She was carrying an umbrella. It was raining, and I asked her to let me walk along with her. She said, all right. We walked along the street. We came to her house. I asked her to walk on with me and show me the way to camp. She said, all right. Soon we came to a very dark part of the street. She stopped and said, there's the camp over there. She had a lovely voice. I wanted that voice. She was leaving to go to her house, and I did not want her to go. I grabbed her by the throat. I choked her. I choked her. She didn't even make a sound. She was so soft. I thought, what have I done? I will have to get her away from here. I then got her to a fence. I got over and pushed her and pulled her by the armpits underneath it. I carried her a short distance and fell in the mud. She made funny noises, a sort of gurgling sound. I thought I must stop that, so I tried to pull her dress over her face. I became frightened and started to run away. Then I met a soldier. He asked me where I was going. I told him, Royal Park. He said, where do you live? I said, Area 1 near the zoo. He said, go this way. I walked a long time, and after a while I come to my latrine and walked in and some soldier asked me, where have you been? I told him that I had fallen in the mud. I then went to my tent. I took my muddy clothes off and got into bed. Next morning, I woke and saw the muddy clothes. I thought to myself, my God, where have I been? What have I done? I then got up and washed the muddy clothes. The soldier that Leonski asked for directions was an Australian named Noel Seymour. After the murder, Seymour recounted what he'd seen to a US military policeman, which allowed them to narrow down where in Royal Park Leonski was camped. His tent, when they found it, was covered in the same mud as Gladys Hosking's body was found in. Three days later, on May 22, 1942, Leonsky was finally arrested and, while in custody, confessed to all three of the murders. Even though Leonsky had been caught, there was still a feeling of unrest on Melbourne's streets and distrust towards Americans. And sometimes these tensions erupted into actual violence towards the GIs, right? Yeah, that's right. This antagonism continued well into the new year, like when a full-on brawl erupted between a crowd of about 3,500 American soldiers and local civilians in the city centre, although this event was actually largely suppressed in newspaper reporting under the wartime censorship laws. Yeah, and you can also see the murder's lasting impact on the community reflected in Albert Tucker's work, Memories of Leonsky, which we mentioned previously. You can see it on our website. Here's Kendra again. 
Um, Tucker's painting, Memory of Leonsky, interestingly, it's inscribed at the bottom left corner, February 1943, a very specific date, um, which is the year following the murders of these three women. And it depicts a very sculptural, monumental nude, possibly a female figure, although there's some kind of male elements as well, um, which is quite Picasso-esque, I think, and Picasso was certainly a dominant influence on his work at the time. It's deconstructed. The arms and legs are kind of outstretched and the genitals exposed in a very confronting way right in the central foreground of the painting. Um, and, you know, I think that it's really a conflation of possibly the perpetrator and the victims because it does have this kind of phallic um, form in the middle of the belly as well as the, the, you know, the female genitals in the foreground, the stri- which are striped with the pubic hair in a way that is echoed in the American or part of the American flag placed to the right. The head of the figure is particularly disturbing. It's almost bird-like, and Leonsky um, was you know, said to comment on the squawking noise that his victims made when he was strangling them. The, the mouth is red-lipped and open, and it has that snout-like nose that I talked about deriving from the injured soldier that Tucker saw at the Heidelberg Hospital. Um, but the figure could be laughing hysterically or could be also, you know, um, crying out in anguish, really. And that's why I think it's an interesting conflation of, of, of the two, of Leonsky and his victims. And in the um, left hand, there's a bird, and, you know, it looks like the dove of peace, which was known to us through Picasso's work, but actually the bird is um, almost being squeezed in the in the figure's hand and trying to escape and again I, I you know having read some newspaper accounts of the murders Leonsky was very interested in trying to get at the women's voices he was sometimes called the singing strangler and he um you've got to you know really read that I think probably as the bird is as representative of the victims trying to get away on the other hand is outstretched and really gesturing towards an aeroplane in the sky which is a pretty clear symbol of war in Tucker's work but I'm quite intrigued by the whole background which is very um, non-specific not like the images of modern evil which are clearly set in identifiable settings that are part of Melbourne this is more like almost like a beach scene um, strangely and it's very it makes the figure seem even more vulnerable you know being out in the middle of this isolated area with nothing around um, and, you know, it's very clear that um, I find it a very disturbing, really deconstructed figure. It's very clear that Picasso was, is, was an important source for it in terms of his sculptural, you know, monumental cubist nudes on the beach. Because there's that reference to the, the noises of the victims, it's got an auditory component, which is quite fascinating. So it's a kind of synthesis of the visual and the auditory, you know, br- of brutality. People reacted so vehemently to the images of modern evil when they were shown. But, um, yeah, because I guess because they were psychodramas, you know, which was very unusual at the time, but they were all concerned about the psychodramas on the street, do you know what I mean? But once they were represented at them, they didn't want to know, they didn't like the way that Tucker had imaged them. Beginning with memories of Leonsky, Albert Tucker's series, Images of Modern Evil, was really the beginning of the shift away from landscape painting in Australia towards urban settings. 
So in that sense, the brownout period is connected with the growth of modern art in Australia. But what happened after Leonsky's confession? Let's hear from Kate again. So one of the big controversies about the Leonsky case is the way in which justice was carried out. And there are certainly arguments that there wasn't natural justice, that he uh, was mentally unfit for trial and should not have gone on trial. Um, if he'd been found to be mentally unfit, he would have been sent back to the Amer- you know, United States. Leonsky was sentenced to hang at Pentridge Prison in the suburb of Coburg. And according to the popular press, Leonsky maintained an air of cheerfulness while awaiting execution. And he even kept up with his exercise routine and was redubbed the Smiling Strangler. I think because of this particular photo, which you can see on our website, where he appears to be grinning from ear to ear. But I think we can get more of an insight into Leonsky's mental state from this poem by Oscar Wilde called The Ballad of Reading Jail, which he became quite obsessed with while he was incarcerated. Wilde had written this poem while incarcerated for homosexuality in 1896, and it's about his impressions of a man who was sentenced to hang. He walked amongst the trial men in a suit of shabby grey. A cricket cap was on his head, and his step seemed light and gay. But I never saw a man who looked so wistfully at the day. I never saw a man who looked with such a wistful eye upon that little tent of blue which prisoners call the sky, and at every drifting cloud that went with sails of silver by. I walked with other souls in pain within another ring, and was wondering if the man had done a great or little thing, when a voice behind me whispered low, that fellow's got to swing. November 9th, 1942, Edward Leonsky was hanged at Pentridge Prison. His body was transported to Hawaii, where he was buried in a military cemetery. His grave is still there today. On the 15th of August, 1945, the Australian Prime Minister Ben Chifley announced news of Japan's surrender to the Allies. With the end of the war, American troops were no longer needed in Australia. We asked Ferna if she remembered when the Americans left Melbourne, and she recalled the time vividly. Uh, they left Melbourne about 1946, the last of them would have left, I should say, perhaps even earlier than that. I remember that very well. The chef who usually works here on a, a Sunday lent me a book with the end of the war all black and white pictures and stories, and that was just beautiful. Mm. I'm in one of the pictures on the day the war was um, declared over. It was half past nine in the morning, and we were told the day before it was probably coming to an end, but we had to go to work. And I'd organised, as I said, I was in Manchester Unity building to get up on the floor there and I can see myself standing on a box at the back, waving. (laughs) And it was just a fantastic day. Didn't go home that day. It was just vibrating. (laughs) Everyone dancing and carrying on. It was amazing. 
Wow, what an incredible story to end the series with. Yeah, it's a good one. And we've got a bunch of people to thank for it. So Duncan Smith, who took on the daunting task of being the voice of Leonski, thanks very much. And of course, a very special thanks to Anna for stepping up as guest producer for the episode. Thanks for having me. No problem. Anna's debut fiction novel, Only Daughter, is available now from all good bookstores. And we can't wait to read your book on Leonski when that comes out too. And what about that website, Anna? About the bunkers? Yeah, the bunker one. Yeah, I have to keep that updated as well. (laughs) No, I'm just joking about that, actually. That website's not mine. (laughs) So that's the end of the series, but we'd like to hope it's not the end of Dead and Buried. We'll be taking a bit of a break over the Australian summer, but to help make future Dead and Buried episodes, we might just be calling on your support sometime soon. Yeah, and if you want to help us make Season 2, follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram or sign up to our mailing list and we'll let you know what you can do to help us when the time comes. But for now, the best thing you can do to help is to give us a review on iTunes. That's a great way to help us get a second season. And while you're there, why not check out Felon, another Melbourne-made true crime podcast. We love it. Yeah, it's great. So that's it, we're done. Dead and Buried is dead and buried. For now, anyway. For now. So take care. And thanks for listening, everyone. Yeah, thanks so much. See ya. Bye. You can jump on our website at deadandburiedpodcast.com to explore the original evidence we use to build our stories. Dead and Buried Podcast is supported by the City of Melbourne and brought to you by bornandbredhistoricalresearch.com.au. Get in touch and we'll help you find what you're looking for. <laughs>